Welcome to the Beers and Miles podcast, where we talk about beers, miles, and whatever else we can manage to jump off topic with. My name is Chris, your host for the evening, or morning, or after, I really don't know. Um, so whatever. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope you guys are still listening at this point, because I've already messed up. Uh, <laughs> I'm joined by two co-hosts for the uh, today's pod, coming out of, I think, the left Google Hangouts here. Uh, we have Man on a Mission, and uh, what mission is that? His mission is to stay hydrated. Brent, this is your reminder to drink your water. How you doing, uh, Brent? I'm doing good. Oddly enough, I don't have a water with me at the moment, but I'll go get one in a second. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and drink this beer instead because that should hydrate me nice and funny. I'll take it. Yeah, Brent hit up the group chat and said that uh, he needs reminders to uh, get him to drink water, so I figured I'd throw it in the group and to the, the podcast. Uh, and I think, oh, I was going to say the right, but actually you're in the middle this time. And... Uh, Still having trouble telling directions at this point. It's been a long day at work. We have our resident Browns fan and our uh, Ray the Doggo aficionado, and uh, apparently a pumpkin spice latte uh, fan. And uh, if you don't like it right now, uh, she's got a couple stern words to, to tell you, apparently. Uh, Nicole, how are you doing? I'm good. I also kind of can leave your mind for a second. I think there was a little bit of a missed opportunity in this intro because. You said, you know, morning, evening, whatever, but the, the 1996 smash hit Able Bites commercial once said, pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening, pizza at supper time. When you've got beers and miles on a bagel, you can have, listen to beers and miles at any time. See? You could have had that. Ray the Doggo aficionado and also Bagel Bites aficionado. I think, my job's, I think my job's to do the intro. I think it's the one job that I have today. <laughs> Sorry. All right. I'm well, feeling pretty frisky today because people were really mad at me about drinking a pumpkin spice latte in August, and I'm just telling you, I'm drinking a pumpkin beer tonight. Fuck the haters. <laughs> it's August. It's August. Fuck the haters. Filthy mugwood. All right. Well, as we do with every podcast, we're going to start off with, um, actually, no, because. Uh, I forget to do this all the time. This is your reminder to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts because apparently that's where the magic happens. And uh, leave us a five-star comment. Why should you comment? Because apparently Apple tells us that if you leave a comment or like or whatever, that makes our podcast look a lot better. Uh, I'm here. To, I'm not here to guide your phone and maybe you should head to the podcast app. Just, I don't know, just grab your phone, go get the podcast app, go in there, leave a five-star review. Who knows? Maybe we can start looking uh, at new listeners. I'm not saying that you're not a great listener. I'm just saying you should maybe share the podcast around. Um, and if you like the podcast, tag at Beers and Miles in your story, and we'll be happy to share you. Uh, maybe that person that you randomly met three years ago at a bar that somehow you're following each other's lives for the last like, couple of years that you've never really talked to afterward, maybe they'll like the podcast. Who knows? We're not. I'm not here to tell you anything. Anyways, today we have an exciting episode for you. Today's guest is Puma's own Stephen Fahey. Stephen hails from San Diego, California, where he enjoyed a successful prep career at La Costa Canyon, leaving with PRs of 413 in the 1600 and 853 in the third 200. Capping it off with a placing second at the California State Meet, but he wasn't just done just yet. Stephen went on to compete for the Stanford Cardinal, where he was a five-time All-American, two-time Pac-12 steeplechase champion, I think won the big meet twice, three times, twice, I think. There we go, twice. 
And I love for PRs of 834 in the steeple, 754 in the 3K, and 1334 in the 5K. He capped off his collegiate career with a fantastic national title in the steeplechase with one of the craziest finishes in recent history. Um, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, no, great to be here. Uh, excited to chat with all you guys. And uh, I brought some water myself, so here we go. Stay hydrated, everybody. There we go. And I didn't get a chance to open the beer. So the beer today that we're going to be drinking to stop off the show is Other Half Space Diamonds. It's a double dry hopped Imperial India Pale Ale, 8.5% from Other Half. Uh, this comes from uh, Ethan from the Oval. He uh, went over to Pittsburgh and uh, he gave me a couple of beers. So thank you, buddy. Brent, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am drinking, uh, I'm actually drinking Hard Cider. Um, Blake's Hard Cider Rainbow Seeker. So it's a pineapple hard cider. It's pretty good. Would recommend if you like ciders or pineapple things. Yeah. Nicole, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking pumpkin spiced ale um, from Mad Tree Brewing. And it's everything that I wanted it to be. Um, and again, if you don't like pumpkin, you're a mugwood. <laughs> Jesus. Fuck. <laughs> All right. Well, we start the show off with these uh, elite files. Just kind of getting to know you. How did you get into running? Um, so I, uh, I've been running for a long time because uh, my parents were really into it growing up. So I pretty much was like put into those road races that little kids do when they learn how to walk. Um, <laughs> so you can probably see pictures of me in a photo album in my parents' house somewhere running a race when I was like two years old. Um, running was always just kind of like a part of our family growing up and it was like the sport that my parents were really into. So, um, I pretty much was doing kids races like my whole life alongside of soccer and basketball and whatever else. But I started probably taking it seriously in like high school, um, like around ninth grade, but, uh, I did some of the club stuff when I was a kid too. So, um, I ran like USATF nationals for cross country at, during like the Bantam and midget age divisions and everything. But, I didn't really like start training for it until high school. And I think like, you know, once I got to high school, I think I kind of came into my own in terms of actually like wanting to do it myself. You had pretty good success during those times though, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was good. I, I hated training. My dad used to bring me the, the, uh, <laughs> to like a trail or a soccer field to go do little mini workouts like once or twice a week, but I did love to race. So, um, we would go to like the USATF cross country nationals every year and, I won it when I was 10 years old. So I like to sometimes say that my, my athletic peak was when I was 10 because I was, I was on the swim team. I was uh, playing basketball. I was playing club soccer and I won a national championship in cross country. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I don't know if it's ever going to get better than that, but uh, yeah, that was, that was me at 10 years old. And then uh, I promptly quit running right after that because I was like, nah, man, I just want to play basketball. I want to be, I want to be an NBA player or a soccer player. And then uh, eventually came back to it. I think my parents knew I was always going to come back to it. But yeah, I did have some really success with running. So you're telling me that Steven was winning the uh, national championship in cross country and then come back and just start dropping dimes in the, from the, from the three-point line? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> I, uh, I wasn't much of a jump shooter as much as I wish that I could have been, like my idol crowd quarter. But uh, I was more of a uh, drive hard with the left, and they didn't really know how to defend, especially with lefties. I don't, I don't think the kids expected anybody to be left-handed. So drive hard to the left, 
don't hesitate and just lay it up every time. And when you're 10 years old, that'll pretty much get you a bucket every time. Man, this is this is what I needed when I was 10 years old. Because every time I remember just very clearly when I was on the sixth grade basketball team that I went out and I finally had a just the court was wide open. They passed me the ball and I go out for the for the uh, layup goes right off the court. Got benched the rest of the season. Yeah, if you just go up though, when you're 10, you're either gonna make it or you're gonna get fouled. Like kids don't know how to play defense. So <laughs> I, once I once I learned that, once I learned to just not be afraid of just going in every time, ignoring my coach and all the plays that he had drawn up, and just going hard to the to the hoop, like that's how you score when you're 10. <laughs> um, not not saying ever that I was uh, an elite basketball player, but I I did uh, at least get that figured out by the end of that time. I was going to say, even even as a righty, that was my move. Drive to the left and left-handed layup. I learned how to do a left-handed layup when I was younger. It just confuses people. Can't, yeah, can't stop it, yeah. Don't know what's going on. Follow Brent and Steven for more youth basketball tips. So, <clears throat> you did come back to running, though. Did you come back to it in middle school? Yeah, so I did a little bit of running in middle school. I ran for, for my middle school team in sixth grade and you know trained with them maybe like a couple times a week uh sometimes begrudgingly but once again i liked competing in the races it was more just like i wasn't really into training full-time i was still playing club soccer at that time and um i did another usatf nationals in seventh grade and then um, rejoined the uh middle school team in eighth grade and i think i like started to enjoy it a little bit more then but because I was starting to watch my brother who was two years older than me run in high school. And I was like, oh, okay, like that looks kind of fun. Um, I remember specifically one like fall middle school race where I won the race and then I went to my club soccer practice right afterwards. And I was like pretty tired. And my British soccer coach was yelling at me a lot. And I was like, man, I never get yelled at in running. Like I, I beat everybody in that. Like maybe I should just like kind of stick with that. Like, <laughs> um, I, uh, so around that time in eighth grade, I gave up soccer and I finally started running, uh, exclusively from then on. Um, I was still thinking about going out for the freshman soccer or basketball team in high school. And then I was informed that, uh, you actually had to train for track in February and March, which I didn't realize at first. So <laughs> that dream quickly died and I was pretty much all in on running after that. So I don't know if you knew this, Steven, but, uh, if you search for your name on YouTube, there's a couple of videos that come up. Oh yeah. So uh, this is what we're gonna ask about these videos because uh, that was in our in our little history, uh, history of the pod for you. Uh, <clears throat> one thing was the was the rivalry between you and Avery Emerson that like actually like you guys was that a thing? Dude, I gotta tell you, it was it was uncomfortable as as a high schooler just how tight that rivalry was. Um, I showed up to pretty much every middle school track meet that year. All I could think of was I can't lose to this girl in front of all my friends um, because she was really good. And every time, every time we showed up, uh, she would pretty much hang on me for almost the whole race until I could drop her. But I wasn't much better than her, so <laughs> the whole race I was running in fear. Um, yeah, Emma and the rest of her sister, uh, sisters and brother were all like pretty talented runners. So every time we showed up at the middle school races, it was pretty much just me versus her. Yeah, I think her dad has a video on the internet somewhere, the two of us, uh, very close, <laughs> too close co for comfort, for sure. It was, uh, she actually has a video up and it's like, you can see it's the old, like, like 
you know, when you're like young middle school kid or like you early in high school when you have like the, the really shit hind like jerseys, it was like barely hanging on your clothes. I was like, yeah, that's that's youth right there. <laughs> oh yeah, no, the, the high quality Aviar Oaks middle school Falcons jersey with the full on nip slip and plus, you know, my my crazy form too with my arms going everywhere, I think only just helps make it look even more priceless. So yeah, no, that's a it's a great great video there and a great example of what my middle school career looked like. Did you see coming into even your freshman year that there, like, did you have that idea that you were going to be, I mean, you had the, you had the success as like, as a 10 year old, and then you were seeing pretty good times even as an eighth grader. Did you see it as like the natural progression of like competing at a higher level? Uh, and how much did your brother have an impact on that too? Yeah, I, I think that coming into my freshman year of high school, honestly, all I could think of was like, I want to beat my brother's times. Um, I think that that was kind of my main motivator coming in. And uh, I think I was far enough removed from my glory days as a 10 year old uh, super athlete. And I didn't honestly really see myself as a national champ. By the time I came into high school, it was more just like, all right, uh, my brother's two years older. So whatever he did two years ago, like, I gotta do better than that. Um, which was hard because my brother was actually really good in high school. And, uh, I think eventually I, I got away from that a little bit, stopped trying to compare myself so much to him and actually just try to be my own runner. And I think that <laughs> that definitely helped me to enjoy things a lot more in high school and end up running a lot better too in my own way. But freshman year, no, I, uh, freshman year of season was 100% just, I got to beat Darren. I got to do whatever I can to run faster than him. Um, and yeah, I think I was uh, I was also motivated to make our, our varsity team at LCC and you know be a contributor. And I think having the team stuff helped us back a little bit from individual stuff. But yeah, number one thing was beat Darren. We did it. We did dig a, dig a little deep, and there was an old video interview of you. I think eighth grade or coming into freshman, you were supposed to go to La Costa Canyon. You made the claim that you weren't going to go to La Costa Canyon. What ended up happening? That's right. Yeah. So. Uh, that video was made by Carlsbad High School. So actually, my my eighth grade year, we lived in the district to go to Carlsbad High School. Um, my brother had gotten a district transfer two years before to go to Wacosta Canyon because my parents just really liked that high school. It was about the same distance to us uh, driving-wise as Carlsbad High School. But at the time, Carlsbad High School didn't have a track. They were, like, rebuilding a lot of their campus. And because they were rebuilding so much, like they didn't have a lot of classroom space and all this stuff too. So um, I think Carlsbad High School is actually really nice now, but I think at the time it was kind of like a weird time to go there. Um, and so they stopped doing district transfers in between when my brother went to high school and when I did. So by the time I was coming into high school, basically they weren't going to let me transfer to Macasa Canyon. So I would have had to go to Carlsbad High School. My brother would have been at Macasa. And then we would have had my other two siblings at two other schools. So it would have been four kids at four different schools. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so my parents were like really not about that. And uh, they were trying to figure something out to deal with that. Um, but yeah, so we ended up moving like five miles into the La Costa district. And then I ended up going to La Costa Canyon. But that all happened only about a month before high school began. That's insane. And so, so you switch over and you're at La Costa now and uh, making the team. Was that, because I remember you from camp, little, I think you were like, probably no no bigger than four foot ten, at the very least, like your freshman year. 
and it was you against uh, a little a Tal Brody. Was that like, was that just something that came from camp, or is it something that you had already seen this kid as well? Because you guys kind of grew up with each other going through camp. Yeah, no, I think camp freshman year in 2010 was the first time I ever met Tal. I don't, I don't think he ran in middle school, um, but he went to our rival high school, like Lacosta Canyon and Torrey Pines. have had a long, deep-seated rivalry that everybody kind of knows about coming in. And so at camp, I was with a couple other Lacosta guys, and I think I'll give myself at least five foot something. I think I was, I was a little over five feet tall, but maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a buck so, soaking wet. I couldn't have been more than a hundred pounds. <laughs> um, <laughs> and tall, tall may have actually been four foot 10 for all I know. He was a little guy as well, but, um, all the Tory Pines guys who, you know, were friends with my brother and like who I knew of already sort of because they were good runners were all doubting this new freshman tall that they had. And they were like, this guy's going to be, the next big thing and so of course i was like gosh dude i gotta beat this guy now but little did i know that he would be basically the guy i ended up going back and forth with for my entire high school career and you guys would meet every time i camp it was like the coolest thing it was like this like for these two just kind of give you a sense like i came in as a, a counselor and counselor in training i think that year and then i came in as a counselor and every year it's like they had a warn us i think farmer had a warn us seems like hey they're gonna come into camp. You don't let them. You don't let them take control of the workout because they will. <laughs> it was just the funnest thing to see you guys like develop as like tiny kids that come into your senior year. But anyways, um, so at, at what point did did you do you know did you notice a point in high school where that kind of that pressure of make like being on the varsity team of beating your brother's times where that kind of all went away? Yeah, I mean. I think that the big thing for me was like be allowing myself to just like enjoy my role on the team a little bit more and just to be excited about kind of being, you know, our, our second or third guy my sophomore year or, you know, my freshman year, just focusing on being the best fifth man that I could be or something like that and worrying less about times and, and realizing that, you know, some of the stuff that my brother was able to do in high school when I mean, he broke nine as a sophomore and he was like a state champ in uh you know his senior year in the mile the two mile and cross country and he was you know qualified for foot locker and all this stuff and like i think i had to realize at a certain point that like even if i wasn't going to develop at the same rate as he was meaning like you know even if my sophomore year i wasn't about to run 859 or 412 or whatever he ran like if i could just kind of lean into trying to be the best teammate that i could be and try to help our team to be as good as we can be and just trying to focus on developing at my own pace that I would probably have a lot more fun with it. And I wouldn't be pissed at myself after finishing a race and running nine thirteen or something like that. <laughs> That's kind of like what ended up happening. Like my sophomore year, I still ran really well uh, because I think, you know, we had a really good team and we had good, good, like I had other good teammates. Like we had another runner, Eric Kazi, who was like a nine Oh something guy. And um, we were, I think right on the edge of, being able to qualify for an extending cross country. So that was kind of like a goal of ours that whole year. And so I think just like being able to like kind of lean into those team goals a little bit more and just like trying to be a role player instead of thinking that I had to, you know, live up to what my brother was helped me just have way more fun. Um, and then I think that actually ended up leading to me being able to develop into what I was able to do and run as fast as I was able to my senior year. But up until then, I definitely like was not on the same level as Derek. Did your team help that out too? Like, because typically you see is like <clears throat> you have somebody that does go on and like 
I mean, doubling and winning the 1600, 3200 and the, and the, and cross country, like in California, like it's kind of unheard of that that's, that's legend status in there. Like, and typically you hear something like that, like the younger sibling gets a lot of pressure on them. So like, do you feel like your team and I guess your support system was very much like letting you develop as your own? Yeah, definitely. Like, I think it was cool to be able to find validation in, you know, say, instead of winning the San Diego section meet, like my sophomore year, I, I got sixth, but it was like a big deal for our team that I did that because it helped us, you know, put three in the top six and go, you know, beat Ramona and win the San Diego championship. And like, I think that if I had just put all this pressure on myself that, oh, I have to, you know, if I'm not winning all these races and if I'm not, you know, doing all the same stuff that he is, then, um, you know, that I'm not, you know, kind of like living up to the, the hype or the expectations or whatever. I think just having the other guys on the team to depend on me to just be, I don't know, the best number three man that I could be or something like that and be able to be excited and, you know, and find validation and celebrate, you know, the kind of stepwise accomplishments along the way was really big. And I think that if I was just an individual, like I wouldn't really have anybody to celebrate those things with, but being able to kind of just like, pour myself into our team's goals and everything. Um, I think, you know, honestly helped me to run a lot better than I would have if I had put all that pressure on myself. It's awesome. I mean, I even remember it from when you were in, when you were in high school and like you very, very quick to um, just call out the accomplishments of your teammates. And uh, especially as like the star runner that you were in, like in high school, like you don't after, sometimes you don't, you don't hear that. Uh, especially guys that run like sub nine. It's like you were very quick to be telling about other people's success and talking about the team. And it's, it was great to hear from her from there, even from the very beginning. Um, but at this point, I mean, you're going into, like you say, your junior, senior year. Um, at, at what point, like now you start to start looking at, hey, I got to start looking at colleges now. Um, how <clears throat> did you already kind of have an idea where you were going to go? Uh, did you already have, what were your goals kind of coming into your senior year? Um, so I, I looked at a bunch of different schools during my senior year. Uh, I was just telling my roommates, I was actually really glad that back then recruiting was such that you couldn't really talk to coaches until the summer before your senior year. Because now I feel like there are coaches talking to like people who just finished their sophomore year in high school. And honestly, I would have had no idea what to say to those coaches back then, let alone where <laughs> I wanted to go or what I wanted in a school. But I think by my senior year or coming into my senior year, I knew that I wanted to be in a place that uh, was similar to that environment I had in early high school where I had runners that were better than me that I could look into and where I could lean into just like trying to be the best team runner that I could be. And I knew that like individual stuff would come if I would surround myself with the right people and the right culture. And so I think that that was big for me. I didn't want to go somewhere where I was going to be the best on the team because I knew that it wouldn't get out of me what I thought I could do. Um, it was helpful to have my brother having just done the process two years earlier because I kind of got to see what visits were like and see a little bit about what kind of things he looked for in the team and a coach and just like kind of some of the details of all that. So I, I took like five different visits to five pretty different schools. Like I went out to Princeton with Coach Fidge and uh, UCLA uh, with Coach Forrest Braden and then I checked out University of Portland and uh, Georgetown. So. You know, I thought about maybe following my brother's footsteps there, but 
uh, I think Stanford was always the school that I really wanted to go to. I mean, you know, being somebody that grew up in California, like academically, it really doesn't get better than that. But um, mostly I went there because, like, the team that coach Chris Miltenberg had been building there since he showed up in 2012 and the culture that he and Coach Oliver had been putting together was, like, exactly what I wanted to be a part of. I knew it was going to be something that was going to be challenging because I was going to come in as one of the worst guys on the team and I was going to really have to prove <laughs> myself. Um, but something about that kind of excited me and I knew that, like, the only way to go was up if I you know, put myself in that situation. Be honest, though, you went to Stanford because the mascot. Yeah, the, you mean the tree or the color red? <laughs> the tree. Yeah. The tree. Okay. The, tree. <laughs> the tree is cool. It took me uh, a couple weeks to realize that cardinal was not the bird, but just actually a shade of red. Um, the cardinal. But, uh, yeah, so don't ever say cardinals when you're talking about Stanford. People do that. Um, Honestly, though, the tree is kind of horrifying. Like, if you yeah. actually look at it, so like, I would rather have a cute little cardinal. <laughs> the tree mascot actually changes every year. Somebody gets to, whoever wins a contest gets to, like, design the new mascot that you see at football games. Um, but, yeah, no, the tree, the idea of just having, like, a tree with a face on it is uh, a pretty horrific concept to begin with. But <laughs> when people enter this contest just to be, like, facetious, do they just come in, like, I'm going to make an ugly little motherfucker? <laughs> and then, like, it's just, like, ah! <laughs> I mean, if they do that, drops to them because they have to dance at so many sporting events the rest of the year. So if, if that's the joke that they want to make, then <laughs> that's how they pay for it. But, um, yeah, but definitely I think once somebody does win it, they think like, oh, man, I've got to outdo everybody else that's ever done this before. So I think that they're all trying to one-up the former trees. And the, the really scary thing, if you want a real horror show, is uh, come to one of the, uh, like, Stanford homecoming weekend games because all the old trees. Oh no, the ones from the sixties. Yeah. Oh no. It's like a forest. Yeah, so it's a forest, and they're all really scary looking, and uh, they all—you can tell that they all just tried to make their own more scary and weird than the one before, and it's—it's it's funny and horrifying. And uh, yeah, Stanford is such a weird place. All I'm gonna yeah, say for any for any any listeners, if you want to see nightmare fuel. Just Google like old 1950s and 1960s collegiate mascots. They're fucking terrifying. I found one from like my old, from like Laverne, like a leopard. And it was just like the most terrifying looking thing. It looked like the, it looked like Penn State's mascot, except like a lot more like janky and just crack out. It was terrifying. Oh, you think the Stanford I mean, tree is bad? Y'all should see Purdue Pete. I, I was going to say, even some of today's mascots like Purdue Pete are fucking horrifying. Nightmare fuel. Uh, uh, uh. So, let's finish off senior year real quick. Uh, also, uh, did you break nine as a, as a junior? Okay. No, I was close. Nine oh two at Arcadia. So I have to ask because I didn't get to ask Colin Jarvis this. How does breaking nine as a high school kid? Um, for me, I mean, like, I think the whole second half of my high school career was basically dedicated to just trying to break nine. I think. Everything I did, I was like leading up to that. I was just like, oh, okay. I think like you know this is gonna help me try to break nine, or this is one step closer to breaking nine. Um, what was crazy is that the race that I finally had the opportunity to do it at Arcadia my senior year was just like a really deep race with a lot of guys like Blake Haney and Connor Mance and Soraki Rikandani, like to name just like a few of the guys. But I ended up actually only getting eighth place in the race, so like 
I was kind of just in the middle of like a bunch of people and I was not ever even really in contention to win. Um, so it, it definitely wasn't like I was like breaking the tape or anything like that when I did it, but I did cross with a lap to go and I saw the clock and I knew I was going to do it from 400 out. So it was cool that I got like a whole lap celebration and, <laughs> and I really, I really didn't care. I feel like in that last lap, what place I got, I was just like, as long as I break nine, I'll be fine. But I think that the excitement of knowing I was going to break nine actually led me to have a really great last lap when I ended up running 853. So worked out nicely. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I felt like, I felt like I'm a pretty badass 18 uh, year old at that time. <laughs> the, for, for people that don't know, like the Arcadia two mile or the Arcadia 3200 is, is kind of a legendary, it's become a legendary staple in like high school track where you just have a very stacked heat even now like the the b heat you'll still have a couple guys break nine and it's just like it's always to see how many people can break nine on that like in that heat and like there'd be times like i think over one of them we had like 18 people break nine it's insane like somebody runs like 840 and then you just have like a track like a a ton of people come through and you see some guys break nine for the first time you see the finish and it's like so like i have to ask you that like you finish the like cross line. Not you. Not only do you break nine, you break nine pretty, pretty big. It's like how is it like you finish and like you have all the guys that are just like get under nine. Like how is it like having a group of like high school kids who are just like we broke nine. Yeah, you see a lot of guys celebrating across the line, but for me it meant a little bit more because of the time I ended up running. Um, so you know we've been talking about my brother a lot. His best time in high school was actually 8.54 low, like 8.54.2 or something. So I came into that race with no intention of trying to beat his time. Like, I had long since given up trying to, you know, match all of his times. I just wanted to break time. But when I crossed and I looked up at the clock and I saw that I had run 8.53.95, I was like, oh, sweet. Like, this is like a school record. Like, this is finally, like, the validation that, like, doing it my own way has worked. Like, I'm, I'm faster than him now forever suck it um, <laughs> also i was happy that i ran 853.9 instead of like 854.1 because i knew that like you know people are lazy and they don't want to read the, yeah. the you know thousandths of a second or whatever but if they see 853 versus 854 they're like oh well, it was clearly faster it's easy so it didn't even look like a tie so at the time that that's that's the exact thing that was running through my head it's just oh, like right, i'm glad i beat him but i'm glad i beat him by a full second did you rub it in his face Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'll never live it down. He, he got to keep the mile school record, so he had that. And all the glory of the this, you know, state championships and all that. I think there's like a banner hanging somewhere in our school because he was like the Gatorade athlete too. I don't know. He got all the fancy stuff. Yeah. I got the 3,200-meter school record. 3,200-meter so <laughs> uh, state meet. So how, yeah, I, how, how, did that, how did that work out for you there? Um, so I came into that race pretty confident, but – I also knew that I was racing Blake Haney, who had doubled the year before. So as a junior, he won the mile and two mile. And so he was going for the double-double, and um, it was like a pretty hot day. So I knew he ran, he won the mile earlier that day, and it was like, I don't know, 95 degrees in Fresno at Buchanan High School. Um, and they were all ready for him to do it twice, like, you know, do the double-double. And I think they the last time that that had been done was like sometime in the 80s, and they like brought the guy out for the ceremony because they were like, oh, like Blake was going to do it. Yeah. So 
I think the other guys in that race, like me and Blair Herlock, who were later my teammate at Stanford, and Fred Huxley, who ended up going to run at Washington, like, we all knew that, and we were like, oh, nope. we don't want to lose this. We don't, we're not just going to let this guy win. Like, we're at least going to try to make it a race. I was coming in fresh and very confident, so I took the race out pretty fast. The first, like, 400, 800 felt pretty good, um, and then settled in. And uh, a couple other guys, I think Tall was up in the front at one point, too. That was cool. Um, but then, like, late in the race, one of my my, my future teammate, Blair Herlock, just, like, took off and led a group of, like, me and Fred out and anybody who had run the mile earlier that day was pretty much toast from that point they just kind of couldn't really hang with it um so it was cool you know from that point on realizing like not only was i gonna be top three but i was gonna be like <laughs> guy that at the time was just like straight up better than me so um i it, it felt good knowing i was gonna beat him but um i like went for the win with like 300 to go and fred hudson had a little bit more than me in that last 300 um but honestly like I was still pretty happy with second at state meet. I think that it was like a good last like high school race for me. So, um, well, not the last high school race, the last race for Canyon. So I was, I was pretty happy. Nice. Nice. And so, um, you did go on to race a couple more races didn't you, you did, uh, did Brooks PR after that? uh, Brooks PR was my last race. So after state, I, took a couple weeks where I did almost no training, did my high school graduation and grad night and all that other fun stuff. Uh, I, I had an invite to Brooks and I was just like, I'm just going to this for fun. I just want to not get last. Uh, that was, that was the goal. I was going to, I was going to play all the games and meet everybody and show up to the race in the uniform and, um, hopefully at least beat one person. Um, cause it was like late June. So it was like a full three weeks after the state meet. Yeah. And I didn't have plans to do anything else. And I knew as soon as that race finished, I was pretty much just going to get ready for cross country. Um, and then in the race, uh, I ended up finding myself just kind of still in it with like 600 to go. And I was like, well, shoot, this is like my last race in high school. So like, I, I guess I should try to win. huh? And so <laughs> then I just like, I went straight to the front and uh, everybody else was kind of lazy and nobody really wanted to go with me. So for a little bit, like coming into the bell, I, I had some daylight and I was like, oh, smooth. And then I heard some breathing behind me and I looked back and it was Grant Fisher. And I was like, oh, dang it. Um, <laughs> so Grant dusted me pretty hard in the last 200, another future teammate of mine. And uh, he just got fifth at the Olympics. So I don't feel so bad about that anymore. But um uh, he, uh, yeah, he dusted me pretty hard in the last 200, but I hung on for a second, and uh, I was the first senior, so there we go. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> I was I was very happy with that, and I think it was, once again, a race where coming in with no real pressure or expectations led to, you know, an awesome finish, so. And technically, a faster race, too. It was a full two-mile, but I ran 8.55, so it would be like 8.52 for the 3200. Save it as here. We count it. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't, doesn't count on the record books, but um, I, that's what I count. Yeah. Nobody cares about the record books. Yeah. Still counts. Still counts. Count it. Scoreboard. So you're now coming into your freshman year. Um, this is, I mean, I tell this to, like, I just had a, a kid, uh, one of the kids that I was coaching is going to North Central. He just started in North Central, and I gave him the advice of, like, Every kid that you go, that, that you're on, every freshman you're basically running with, is the top guy on your team. The top guy on your team, probably a guy that's like right in there. This is the most extreme example of this. Like every guy on your team is probably the best guy on their team. Well, obviously the best guy on your team 
best guy in their district, best guys in their state. Like, it's usually that kind of case there. I think at that point, you guys had taken second or third in the, the national championship. Like, how was it like ending up on a team that I think Maxim, uh, was Maxim was on that team uh, when you were there or like your freshman year? Yeah. And you had the Roses? I, my freshman year, we had Maxim Korolev transfer in from Stanford. So he was a fifth year in my freshman year. And he had just been third at NCAA cross the year before for Harvard. So he was good. But then we already had the two Rosa twins who had, I think, just been like fifth and sixth in the 5K and 10K, respectively, Jim and Joe. Um, in the outdoor track and they were both like cross-country all-americans we had sean mcgordy who had been coming back from an injury but as a freshman he was like 1336 in a 5k or something like that and yeah then like you said i mean the whole rest of the roster was guys who had won state championships and national championships in high school and it was a pretty stacked team and i mean obviously coming into that year i think that we expected we were going to win but um i definitely didn't exactly factor into our top seven coming into that year to say the least. <laughs> the one thing that I remember, I think when it was when you were a counselor in training, was like, yeah, I'm redshirting. And I'm like, you just, you just, you're second at the state, you, you ran 8.53. And it just like, it really puts things into perspective of like how good those teams are like at the top. And it's like an 8.53 guy is going to be redshirting and planning to redshirt. And like I think even that season, I mean, you ran like when I came into Tiffin, you were still ran like eight ten in the indoor, and I was like, "This guy's a red shirt. What the hell?" Yeah, I know. And the the one thing I say that I regret is I wish that I hadn't come into that freshman year just thinking like, "Oh, I'm going to red shirt regardless." Like, yes, like the rest of those guys were better than me, but like in hindsight, like I wish that I would have come in at least trying to give myself a chance to make it, and I think that I would have been even more dialed in during my freshman year. If, I thought, you know, not necessarily like that. My goal was to make the top seven. Like, that's mm -hmm. not necessarily like the culture that we had. But I wish that I'd come in thinking, like, I want to try to contribute as opposed to just, like, I know I'm going to register. Um, but, I mean, even if I had pretended as best I could, like, the fact of the matter was, yeah, I was maybe a 14th or 15th best guy on the team coming into freshman year. How was that then, transition as far as, like, even – because, like, I don't think we ever hear it too much about, like – guy coming into one of the top programs in the country like how's it transitioning into th that kind of program as well as like how did the top guys treat it because like you guys not only have a really a top program but it's a really good alumni base from what i hear like like people like like it is a thing where like you want to do it's 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 a culture thing it's a it's a it's a legacy thing like how do they treat you guys as new guys uh coming into it yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the, the bar is really high. Like, that's a cliche thing to say. But, I mean, I think that the guys like Chris Derrick and, you know, Brad and Brent Hauser and, uh, you know, Garrett Heath, like guys that have graduated, really do, like, you know, look at these teams. And, you know, maybe they're not communicating with us in person, but we know that they're paying attention. And we know that they were guys that took tremendous pride in, you know, the way that they were able to lead the team. And, you know, we always talk about, like, that how Stanford guys always want to try to lead the team better than they found it. And so, like, I think when I came in, like, the older guys had been freshmen and sophomores when, like, Chris Derrick and um, Jacob Riley and some of those guys were there. And so they took tremendous pride in everything that they did because they knew how much it meant to those guys. And, you know, and they still looked up to those guys, even though they were now, you know, 
professionals. And so when I came in, those guys were really tough on me. Um, and it, it was no, you know, like friendly freshman welcome. It was like, no, man, like you got to earn your respect here. And like, you got to show that you belong here and you got to really buy into everything. Not only that, you know, Coach Miller is telling us in the culture that he's trying to build, like that was first and foremost, but like beyond that, I mean, you know, you really had to prove to the rest of the guys on the team that, you know, you were for real and they weren't just going to, um, you know, they were all nice guys, but in terms of, you know, finding your place on the team, you know, they, they definitely had like very high expectations. Um, and I think that that was what I wanted, but I, I don't think I even really understood the full extent to which that was going to be the case. I mean, uh, I think that, you know, we definitely had some enforcers on the team early on and guys like uh, Mike Atchew and Marco Bertolotti who like were big names, but, you know, not as big as, you know, a, a Gary Heath or something like that. But they were guys that were going to make sure that every day in practice, you know, I had, they were watching me like, ah, and if I did anything stupid that, you know, made me just look like a dumb high school or like they were going to lay into me, whether it was making fun of me or whether it was straight up telling me like, Hey dude, like that's not how we do things. You know, what's fun. What's funny about that is like, just seeing how Atchew raced and like was a miler. He was a mile, like he he was the miler that was on the DMR squad. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like I just read, like yeah, he was yeah. not a guy to push around. So I'm like seeing like, I'm like, I could see that. This is like the guy had that kind of confidence. I'm like, that's cool to hear. Like even seeing guys that you just like translate, like their racing style is like the kind of person they are on the team is pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. No, Mike actually was a total, like put your hard hat on and, and go to work. He's a Michigan guy, uh, tough. And, uh, he, yeah, he was not there for any kind of funny business. Um, I always joke with the guys. So he was a fifth year when I was a freshman and Mike was the kind of guy that like dressed really nicely, had nice shoes and a shirt. And he was like very domesticated and like <laughs> mature. And I remember coming into college and thinking, man, so like, that's what it's like to be 23, huh? Like that's what being a fifth year is like, like I'm going to be like that someday. Like, wow, I got a long way to go. And then, you know, fast forward five years later as a fifth year, I was like, Oh no, never mind. That was just Mike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel pretty much the same. I still can't grow a beer or anything either. So yeah, behind in that department too. But yeah, I mean, those guys were just like the ultimate role models because of the, their personality. And they were just the kind of guys that were going to, you know, keep a culture moving in the right direction when we really needed that. And uh, it helped. They were also really good. So yeah. No, it's a, it's an insight that I don't think we ever get to hear too much about. And um, I mean, I think, I think, coming out of high school, especially as like being a top guy in your state or anything like that. And there comes an attitude with it too. Um, and Brent, you had something to say as well. Yeah. I was, so I was going to ask with, with like a guy like that, uh, did you ever feel like he took it too, like too seriously? I don't know. Cause like coming from like a D2 program where we weren't super good, like, I don't know, we, we goofed off a fair amount, but like was, was someone like that able to kind of like differentiate between like, okay, we can have fun now. Or was he just like all business all the time? No. Yeah. I mean, I think Mike was definitely able to have fun and like, like I think that, you know, all those guys like knew like the time and the place for that kind of stuff. I think that it was just more like, because he had the reinforcement of coach Miller about just like the way that we should carry ourselves. And coach, one of coach Mills, like tenants was like, he wanted us to be like the most professional team in America. It meant that like, you know, if we were ever like at a premium, you know, we're all wearing the exact same thing and you know, you're not doing anything to try to express yourself or something like that. 
or uh, <laughs> whatever that might mean, wearing some pizzazz, or like, you know, if you're, if you're at, you know, a meet and you're watching guys compete, like, you know, we're not going to be the team that's like, you know, yelling stuff or saying stuff about other guys or talking trash or anything like that. You know, like, I think that like things like that, like were things that like he knew if coach Mill saw something like that go down, that he would crack down on us. And, you know, they were in a way like extensions of that, but, you know, I mean, in the locker room or in the right, at the right time, you know, of course those guys, you know, were super funny guys and were like very fun. Um, I think also though, there's just that little bit of freshman hazing that comes with uh, when one of the fifth years <laughs> does it, it's fun and funny, but when one of the freshmen does it, it's like, all right, chill, man, chill. Like, you got to earn your way through the social ranks, I guess, so to speak. But And that kind of um, goes into into what I was, was, uh, was going to mention. It was like, so a lot of people that come out of high school, like you have, I mean, you're going out winning races and you're going out basically like that color instinct, but also you probably have that confidence coming into college. And so like to have like there, I mean, I think we've, we've seen it at all levels, D3, D2, like I'm sure D1 as well. Like you have that kids that are a little bit too big for their bridges. So I'm pretty sure like sometimes you just need a, Hey, it's a new level. You're not the guy that you were before, pal. Yeah. And actually, I mean, for me, the humbling came pretty early too, because we raced as red shirts, uh, like we had a freshman and I at Stanford invite. So like early on, you know, cross country, my freshman year. And, uh, so first AK and yeah, I mean, I was coming in pretty confident and, uh, I, I think I, by that time in practice, I, you know, realized that the rest of the guys on our team were dogs and like, I was going to, you know, I had to find my place on the totem pole, but yeah, I was still coming in as like somebody who would run really fast in high school. Um, but anyways, then, you know, we get to this, this 8k in cross country and I think I ran, you know, probably the first 6k pretty well. And then kind of started to hit the wall a little bit and like, definitely started fading pretty hard in the last K you know, was like stumbling in and stuff. And I still ran like, I don't know, 24, 40 or something. Like it was like, it was like a decent over. It was the kind of thing where if I had been running for San Jose state, the coach probably pats me on the back and says like, great job, man. Like that was an awesome opener. But you know, coach Mill was having none of that. He's like, no, dude, like that's not the way that we race. Like, you know, we're, we're not going to like, you know, like stand for that. Like you got to, you know, execute the plan. Like, and, uh, you know, not be, I guess, just like settling for, you know, running three fourths of the race. Um, but he was basically like pretty, pretty upset with like the way that I had finished. And I think that that made me realize like right away, like, whoa, like they got high standards on this team. And like, there's no just pat on the back for, you know, doing, you know, a job well done, I guess. Like <laughs> if you don't come out ready to, to execute and be really tough the whole way through and run up to the team standards, you know, whether you're the best guy on the team or the 25th guy on the team, like, you know, you're going to be held to the same standard. So, um, realizing that right away, first of all, was tough because I'd never really been yelled at by a coach after a race before, because you know, like you're saying, high school, you're, you either win or you get second and either way you get a pat on the back. Um, but you know, in college, if you falter a little bit at the end of the race, you lose 20 spots and then, you know, you might be costing your team a lot of points or, you know, in this case, it just, uh, was, you know, just, I think an indication to my coach that I had some stuff that I had to work on, uh, especially like mentally and tactically towards the end of some of these longer races. Um, but that definitely put me in my place right away. I think more so than any kind of, any kind of hazing or words ever could was, you know, kind of getting, uh, getting right into it and learning just how hard this was going to be. And I think it, gave me a very level of respect for the guys on the team that were running well too. Um, 
but I mean, I think that was one of the ways that Coach Bill was able to kind of reinforce what, you know, those guys like Mike and Marco and you know, some of those other culture enforcers on the team were all about because, you know, he wasn't going to stand for anybody that wasn't, you know, bringing it 100%. That's a, it, it's, there's, there's a commonality I think I see with, any program that is successful and something that like I've always tried to like pinpoint I, I wrote something in my my uh my college uh or my grad school um like uh my grad school final project was about like how to like it's management like how do how do great teams or how great organizations uh, how are they successful and a lot of it seems to be the commonalities is that culture and 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 it's something that I think talking or like every team talks about it. It's like you, you're held to that standard and, and you're held to that standard from people that have been there and also from the coach. And it's like, how is it now? It's like you come out in a race, like it is discouraging to hear that. Like, was it just like, okay, like this is, this is, uh, this is what I expected. And this is, we just got pre- keep pushing forward. How is it? How is that for you? I mean, for me, it was it was a bit of a shock, honestly, because, you know, like I said, it, it wasn't really something that I ex- had experienced. And I think everything up to that point, I kind of expected, like I expected that college was going to be different. I expected that everybody was going to be good. But I, I think I didn't really expect that I was going to have to completely kind of like, you know, break myself down and rebuild up in terms of like trying to like relearn how to approach races and you know, I, you kind of think like, oh, like racing is something I know how to do. I've been doing this since I was a little kid. But I think in college, like throughout those first couple of cross country races, like I really realized like, like there's a whole like mental side to this and, uh, you know, like some problems that maybe don't get exposed when you're a high schooler who, you know, like I'm saying, you, you either are winning all the time or if you're not winning, you know, and you falter pretty hard at the end of a race or you're mentally not that tough at the end of a race, like, you maybe get beat by a couple of people, but I think that, you know, college racing, especially D1, like really exposes those flaws and weaknesses. And so I think that, you know, right away from that, I kind of had to realize like, like this is going to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And I'm going to have to do a lot of work outside of the actual races themselves to try to like figure out how to address some of this stuff. And so for me, the big thing was basically finishing. Like I had to figure out how to really get myself to hold my form and my composure in the last 1K and, you know, keep all my emotions in check and, you know, not blow my load 600 out and then stagger into the finish. Like I had to figure out, all right, like, I don't want to stay composed the whole 8K. And so for me, I mean, that was a couple of years of work, honestly. I mean, like my sophomore year, I had a lot of opportunities to race in cross country again. And I had like a lot of the same issues. I would run really well for 6K and then fall back. And, you know, I, saw, you know, at some of the highest levels what that meant. I was 203rd at Wisco or 200 something at at Wisco my sophomore year. And I mean, you know, coming from winning races in high school, like I, you know, I never knew what it was like to be that far back in a race. And it wasn't like I ran slow. I mean, like I still ran like probably 25 minutes for an 8K, which is not good on our team, but it's still not like, it's not like I like walked or anything, you know, but, um, and then like Pac-12, same thing, probably ran about a 25 minute 8K, but I was like, you know, towards the very back of the field because I ran my last two K so much slower than the rest of the race. And so I think, you know, from all that, I realized like, dude, like I actually have to like really look into this and, you know, figure out how I can address this. And, you know, what it came of it was a lot of 
talking with coach about, you know, different things that I could do in workouts to try to, you know, fix the, the mental side of things and also, you know, practicing and rehearsing visualization and workouts and, you know, finding a way to get more calloused with those kinds of things, you know, doing things like pretending that the last rep of a workout is actually just the middle of the workout. And I can always have more or, you know, in races, trying to like really relax myself and like not think about the finish and more just like try to be really like in the moment, like practicing being present. So a lot of that movie stuff actually worked. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Following that, do you think that there was any like specific race or any specific moment where you kind of like had a breakthrough, like all of this hard work is, you know, this is it, this is my breakthrough race? Or do you think that everything just kept accumulating and accumulating? Yeah, I do. I actually, so there were kind of two. Um, there was one in track that was um, 5K indoors during my sophomore year, where coming in, my, my personal best had been 1431, I think. And I ran 14 flat in that race. Um, so it was like a 30 second personal best. And, and that came from, I think really just like trying to execute the, uh, the race plan, the way that my coach wanted me to, which was go out really conservative and just like try to build and commit to, you know, building all the way through the line, regardless of what is happening around me. And so I started out that race kind of a little bit further back than I probably would have otherwise, and pretty much moved up the entire race, uh, without really paying attention to what place I was in, but just focusing on positive momentum and trying to pass as many bodies as I could. And I ended up, yeah, like basically just because of, you know, competing as well as I did, ended up running a really fast time, even though I had no idea what time I was running. Um, but I think the biggest break for me, for me was like cross country 2016. So this is like my junior year cross country. And there was like a really hot race for pac 12s at, uh, I think it was in Tucson, Arizona. And earlier that year I had, we had run a race at Panorama Farms in Virginia where I didn't even finish the race because of like heat exhaustion basically. So my coach was like really worried about me for this race because he was like, all right, this dude's already had problems with races. <laughs> and now we're running at another hot race right after he didn't finish this other race. So I think he, knowing that he was like, all right, like I want you to work with Coach Henner, who was his coach from college. He coached at Georgetown for a really long time. Doing some sports psych, some uh, like visualization exercises and like, trying to like get me ready to basically go, you know, do this race. And, um, so I, I worked with him for about a month, like during that season. And, you know, we did all kinds of just like little exercises and talked about, you know, how I could practice things and workouts. And then in that race in Tucson, I ended up getting 16th and being our fifth guy on the team. So it was the first time I'd ever scored for us. And we ended up just like narrowly being second next to Colorado in the race. And I think it was like the first time that I was like really able to like, Kind of overcome my physical limitations using like some of those kind of meditation strategies and Chandler came to the race and was there so it was kind of like the mentor that i've been working on all this stuff we'll have to watch it in person but and also because he was there it's like i know i couldn't let him down <laughs> i had to come through pretty much didn't have a choice but um that race i think if you were to ask like my coach like coach Miltenberg, like that's the one he would probably point to and be like that was like the real breakthrough like that's when we figured out how to actually race in a sustainable way. And I think that I always go back to that when I think about how to run cross country and how you should feel mentally when you're doing it. Is that, is that a, I think if I, I look back at your Twitter, is that your number one worst airport that you've been to? Yes. Yeah. T Tucson, uh, just as a, as a destination for a meet in general, least favorite. Yeah. Um, number one takes the cake. We went there both for cross country 2016 and track 
2019 for Pac-12s. With no offense to anybody that lives in Tucson, I don't know if it was just a part of Tucson that we were staying in or if it was just the course. Um, but, uh, yeah, not, not the best experience either time. I think part of it is, though, it's tough to get to Tucson. You have to fly into Phoenix and drive two hours on a bus while it's hot. And uh, <laughs> it's not the most fun trip. Wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it. Is that Arizona State or, or U of A? U of A. Okay. U of A is out, out in the dirty tea, and then uh, Arizona State is in Tempe, so closer to Phoenix. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so any, yeah, sure. I was going to say how much, how much of, I guess I'll call it like your struggle. Do you think was just attributing to actually making the transition to 8k? Because obviously, you know, high school is 5k. So, you know, 14 and a half, 15 minutes, 15, 30, whatever it was taking you in high school versus now you're out there for another 10 minutes, another nine and a half minutes. Do you think that was some of the issue, just learning how to adjust to a much longer race? I think that the change in distance was definitely part of it, um, but I don't think it was all of it because I think like early in high school, I definitely had um, some issues with just like, you know, figuring out the 5K, or I mean, sorry, late in high school. Like I still had some issues in 5Ks where towards the end of the race, you know, I would start to kind of get a little woozy, especially in like hot races, you know, you where I, I didn't really manage my energy source super well. And I would, by the end of the race, I would, you know, kind of be a little wobbly or not closing super fast. Um, like I think I had that happen at like Mount Sac one year and at the state meet one year. And like, you know, the, the consequence just isn't as high in high school. It's like, you know, it means instead of winning, you know, you might get passed by a couple of guys near the finish. Um, and I, you know, I, I still like noticed it in high school, but I just, I don't think I really read into it as much. Um, I definitely think in college, like adjusting to the 8K was definitely a bit of a physical adjustment. I mean, I, I came in and I had to get a lot stronger. Like, I think I developed a lot physically over the course of high school. I, mean, I, I, I got taller and you know, definitely like through, you know, just like general strength stuff. Like, I think I put on some, some much needed muscle to kind of be able to withstand, uh, you know, 8K of hard running. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely like, I think I... At the time I got it, got the hang of the mental stuff. I don't really think that I like reverted back to the, some of that other stuff very much, uh, which makes me think that I actually think like learning the mental stuff was a big part of it. But I think it's important to know it was more about I think just like learning how to like control my my like and like kind of figuring out how to like read my gauges and be more in tune with what was going on. Because I think my issue wasn't necessarily that I would like quit on myself or anything. It was that I would push and exert way too hard early in the race. And I think I would get to like 6K and I, I would kind of let the alarms go off. And I would start to go to a place physically that I couldn't sustain for the last two games. And I think learning points would kind of stay above the red line for a little bit longer and really manage that energy output over the last 2K is like ultimately, I think probably even more important, but, but yeah, I mean, the AK is going to be an adjustment for anybody. The other thing that I'll say is I always did better than 10K at NCAAs than the AK. Um, and so that would, I guess, be another argument for it really was like mastering you know, that mental control and that, you know, just like trying to stay relaxed and, you know, I guess like figure out how to execute over a longer rate. Um, I actually found that at regionals and nationals running the 10K, I tended to do even better than I would get during the season once I got that off the ground. So, 
two questions here. There's two big things I can, I think it's, this is going to be a commonality of anybody that I ask that comes from these two particular schools. Um, how big is the big meat? Oh man, uh, there's mm-hmm. nothing bigger in, uh, in all of, uh, all of college sports, really. I mean, if you want to talk about an old rivalry, I think, uh, the big meat is coming on like 126 years running or something like that. It's been going since the 18, late 1800s. Um, it's a dual meet between Cal and Stanford that's held every year in April. Uh, I don't think it was, it's been held the last three years, actually. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was held this year, 2021. I think last year, 2020 was the first year it wasn't held in several years, but, um, I'm glad that we went back to this because there was a, a little bit of an asterisk when, uh, Chris mentioned that I was a two time big meat champ because I won the big meat in the steeplechase twice, but the second year I came back and won the 3k later on that day. So, um, I think that officially makes me like a big meat legend. Uh, it's a, yeah, taking home, taking home the three peak. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it was definitely like not the, uh, focal point of our season, but nonetheless, every year we came out, wanted to hand it to Cal and, you know, we made sure to, uh, kind of rally the three for it every year. So we got excited about it. We now, we, uh, the beers and miles podcast has, selling, Chris. Hey, the beers and miles pod has, has two of the hundred or so like steeplechase big meat winners we've had colin jarvis and stephen fade well congratulations you're also talking to the uh big meat record holder at the 3000 meter steeplechase so sorry yeah, colin just like that. okay i just want to say and underselling him chris <laughs> yeah i feel like we were, not, we were very undersold we just know of you as like a twitter legend and now we find out you're this big big meat big deal yeah, I know. I, I'm surprised. I mean, I don't think I have a Wikipedia page yet, but when I do, I mean, that's like the first, first line of it. She'll probably say something about my weekly record. Um, that was one of those things where I knew the moment I crossed the finish line. I was like, well, big me record. This is huge. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally anybody can edit Wikipedia. Yeah. So we you can start a Wikipedia page for you. Yeah. I promise you. I mean, yeah, somebody, somebody's got to do it. When we start a Wikipedia page for you, I will, that will be your first line. No, I was thinking that uh, Stephen Fahey, um, NCAA steeplechase champion, has three uh, library cards and three different zip codes. It's Call true. him Nate Dog. So what are the zip codes? Okay, so I've got one in uh, 92009. That's uh, Encinitas. Uh, or actually Carlsbad, I guess. That's uh, Carlsbad Library. I got that when I was five. Um, I now have one in the 27516 Chapel Hill. That's my most recent one. Um, and then I actually have one in County Galway, Ireland. So that's where my grandma lives. So yeah, I don't even know what that zip code is or if they do zip codes in Ireland the same way that we do, but those are my three library cards. Yeah. I think I have them all in my wallet right now. He's got books. He's got books in different area codes. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, your favorite? Oh man, um, so the the Carlsbad Library has the, the picture of the flower fields on it, which oh, is pretty cool. cool. And I love this too because like it's really hard to see now, but this is my like handwriting from kindergarten. <laughs> so bad. In I brought yeah, I brought this in one time, and they were like, "Oh, you haven't used this card in like a decade. Like this doesn't work anymore." And I was like, "No, no it's fine." Now. Um, and 
this is my library card from County Galway, Ireland. So yeah, this is pretty cool. Um, I was a, I was a pretty little kid when I got this too. So they wrote my name for me. So. <laughs> Like, like old person handwriting. Yeah, I think this is my grandma's handwriting. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I guess it was technically a lie on Twitter because the Chapel Hill Library didn't actually issue me a card. They just gave me a number. Um, but I, I can check out books there. Yeah. You, you go back to your Carlsbad and you're like, um, Mr. Fahey, um, sir, um, you've owed fees for uh, Go Dog Go for about 13 <laughs> years. And we've been looking for you. Officer, get the cuffs. Dude, I'm sure I've got some book che checked out from the Galway Public Library, and I'm sure that the uh, Irish government is looking for me as we speak. But, yeah, they'll never find me over here. Um, but, yeah, no, three different area codes. Nate Dog would be proud for sure. I have to uh, – we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about – oh, actually, we went – I mean, college – you had six years in college. You had six collegiate seasons. Uh, I hate to say it, but like any 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 major setbacks during that time period. Um, yeah. So I mean, we already talked about. It. I registered my whole freshman year, uh, all three seasons. So I was actually healthy the whole way through um, my junior year, and then my. Like for most of my senior year, I, I got hurt a little bit during my junior track, so but I got back for the outdoor season. And then my fifth year was the first year that I actually like missed any like full seasons to injury. But um, I came back for a fifth year expecting to run cross country with my last year of eligibility, and I missed the season with like a labral injury in my hip, um, which was a bummer because that year was one of the several years where we thought we had a team that could win, um, and. So after that season, I ended up coming back and then, you know, the rest of my fifth year was pretty good. I had a decent indoor season and a really good outdoor season. Um, and then it wasn't until pretty much the end of that outdoor season that I even knew doing a sixth year was a possibility. Um, but supposedly because of that injury, I could apply for a medical redshirt for my sixth season of cross country. Um, so we got that done in the 11th hour pretty much like that summer. I kind of applied for a program and got in and, um, was able to get everything through compliance. So I was able to come back for one last season of cross country. So I guess five point three years total, because I, I did not stay for indoors or outdoors that six year. But buddy, we I, I did six year too. We're good. In good company. Good. <laughs> so, yeah, the guys that never get tired of college. Oh no, just keep them going. Uh, your steeplechase when there was another event. I mean, the year before you got third. Right. Like, how was that? I mean, you—it's a you're a five-time All-American, but like, third, like, third at the national meet, and you still got another year going. Like, how does that feel? You know, so what's funny about that race is I was happy to be third, but I left with this weird feeling that I like, I kind of should have won. Um, I mean, Osa Ali was like an awesome athlete. I think that, you know, he's the one who like really ended up taking that opportunity when it came. But I think I came into that race not really knowing what to expect, but knowing that I was maybe good enough to win. But I just like, even though I was starting to get really good that year and had had a lot of success uh, and was a, a cross country All American and All American in the 5K, I think like coming into that race, I still 
didn't fully believe that I could win. And I think that, that was the big mistake because um, the field was pretty wide open. And it, as it turned out, Brian Barraza ended up looking the race out really hard and then over a barrier in the last lap. So when he did, I found myself at the time I was in a chase group behind Brian. All of a sudden, there were three guys that were running behind him while he rolled around on the ground. And we, we all looked at each other and were like, we like one of us has got to go in. And um, Osa was the one that moved first and he took advantage of the situation and with 300 to go he he put himself there and then you know he left me and Jermaine Coleman chasing him um and uh he ended up holding us off and I think I you know I finished in a personal best and you know I finished in third and I was really happy with it my coach was happy with it and everything um but I definitely I think went home that summer with this little feeling in the back of my mind like man maybe if I would have been like a little bit more sure of myself coming into that race. I've really taken that opportunity. And uh, I think that, that kind of fueled me for the next year, coming into my fifth year, knowing, like, I get the opportunity again. Like, I'm not going to give it up. So it's been a couple of years since you've had that at the, like, I guess, the big scale. So, like, Brickville being California, state being, like, you're going for wins. The next level of being at the NCAA level and D1 level and saying, like, all right, like, there's a national title, like how that mindset changes now coming into that last year, uh, going into your races, how, how did, uh, how did that change your racing style or even how to change your, like how you approach races? Well, yeah. So it's funny because like, I kind of had to relearn how to win a little bit because, you know, for so much of college, I was focused on trying to execute the best I could to be you know, 59th in a cross-country race or 17th in a cross-country race or, you know, maybe in a track race where, you know, it was a 5K or something. Like, I I wasn't thinking about winning the 5K, but I was thinking about just, you know, trying to move as well as I could over the second half and try to pass as many guys as I could. You know, I, I think I had several years where, like, that thinking actually helped me to, like, you know, stepwise improve and, you know, not think too big or anything and just, like, you know, just trying to get hits every day and, you know, kind of keep building. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I got to this point at the end of college where I was like, shoot, like, I'm, I'm good enough to start really winning some of these races. But, like, I really do think, like, winning is, is a choice that's made before the race begins. And I think the guys who win races don't ever win by accident. Um, if there's somebody who wins a race, they probably show up believing that they could do it. And you also cannot win a race uh, without taking the lead. You can't beat someone without <laughs> All these things start with a decision, you know? And ultimately, it really is a decision that is made ahead of time. So, yeah, during my senior year and my fifth year, I had to start to shift my focus a little bit more to, like, okay, like, I have to come into each of these races believing that I, I should win, and I have to visualize that ahead of time. And I have to think about all the different scenarios and how the race is going to go and decide when you, I'm going to make that move to put myself in position to win because – you don't put your body out in front at some point, you know, and you don't think about how that's going to happen. And, you know, when, when you're in that situation, you know, you never want to make a hard decision under stress. I think Ian Dobson, an old Stanford guy, told me that one time, like, always make that decision ahead of time so that when you're in the race, there's no decision to make, and it's just something you do. And so I think that that was the way that I approached my, you know, my fifth year and some of those, uh, some of those uh, chase races was, you know, I still wanted to, you know, inherently run the same way that I had been, which is, you know, 
pay attention to my gauges, you know, try to work gradually build throughout the course of the race, you know, start a little bit further back maybe than some people would like to, if, if that's what it takes, you know, gradually move up and really build momentum and, you know, stay true to myself and like what it got me there. But I knew in the back of my mind, like, okay, I've rehearsed how I'm going to win this thing. I'm on the line knowing I'm going to win this thing. And so that when the moment comes, you know, and you got to go do it, you've done it a million times in your head already, muscle memory. So that leads us to the day in question. Talk about the race. Cause, uh, I don't know if it's just like, cause I know our, our group chat, the Boba chat, uh, the whole, the camp counselors of our time, we're losing our mind at this, um, talk about that, the talk about the sequel chase. Yeah. So, um, NCAA championships in 2019 in Austin, Texas, uh, was like a really hot day. And I remember being really excited about that because I felt like going into the race, I was probably the best like flat ground runner or like at least was coming in with like the, some of the best like PBs and 5k and 3k and stuff like that. And so I knew that like being down to fitness, um, that I was going to have a good opportunity to, I guess, just like outrun other guys. Um, and, but I also knew that the race was probably going to be tactical. So, you know, at some point we were probably going to have to close pretty hard and, um, you know, it was going to require, you know, once again, some kind of visualization of, all right, like at what point am I going to make this move and, you know, really put myself in position to go in. Um, but because it was so tactical, I think like for the first two thirds of the race, I was pretty content with hanging a little bit further back because the pace was pretty relaxed and, um, I was just kind of waiting for some other guys to make the move and just like try to follow along with them um, and just kind of like feel it out and see what was going to happen. Um, and I think nobody really started making it an honest rate until maybe about five or 600 to go when Daniel Mahalski from Indiana moved to the front and started really rolling hard. And even though we hadn't been running that hard leading up to that point, I think the heat and just the abruptness of his move caught a lot of guys off guard. And so some really good guys in that race ended up not being able to cover it. And before I knew it, it was pretty much just he, me and him in the last lap, but he was pretty much taking the lead there. So I was just kind of, you know, in chase kind of, and he got a jump on me. So I spent the first half of the last lap just kind of trying to close that gap a little bit. But I think by the time I got to about 200 to go, like somewhere maybe, I don't know, 50 meters before the water pit, I felt like I was right where I wanted to be. And, uh, I had practiced accelerating into the water pit and then accelerating even harder out of the water pit, uh, like so many times in practice over the like couple of weeks leading up to that. And I practiced that at regionals as well. And I felt pretty confident that if I could come into the water pit side by side, that I could beat him over the last 150. Um, and also he had just been doing a lot of work too. So I think he was pretty tired. Um, did not expect though that he was going to hook his foot on the water barrier and fall into the water foot. Um, so when I saw that, like, I was pretty, like, shocked, obviously, but it didn't really change what I wanted to do because already coming into the water pit, I was telling myself, like, the moment I hit this water, I'm going to take off, like, so hard. Um, because that, you know, you lose so much momentum in the water pit, so you really have to put energy into trying to accelerate out of the water pit if you want to try to keep your speed going uh, and come into the home straight away with a lot of momentum. And so because we hadn't run that hard earlier on, I felt like I spent a lot of energy on. Um, and so when I hit the water, and especially, you know, knowing that 
he had just fallen and I had a really good opportunity to go in. Um, I like really took off and I think I was coming into the last barrier with more speed than I ever had before. And to be honest, I, I think I was going a little too fast because I was, <laughs> I, I really didn't expect that, or I don't think I had ever had any practice really coming into it at that kind of speed before. And so if you watch the video closely, I kind of hit the brakes in the last couple of steps before it. Um, and I think I build enough of my momentum that I like scraped the front of the last barrier with my spikes. Like in the moment, I didn't really know what happened. I just felt myself start to fall uh, after I hurdled the last barrier. And the next thing I knew I was kind of on the ground on, on top of the rail. But when I watched the video later on, expecting to see that I like hooked my toe or something like that, um, it looked like I just kind of scraped like the front edge of the barrier uh, as I was coming down, just because of that stutter stump. So oh. it was like pretty minute, but it, you know, it, when you're going pretty fast, even just that little bit is enough to, you know, get you turned around in the air. And, um, and you don't see people yeah. land on the rail too often either. Yeah, it, it was a weird. Uh, I don't exactly understand how I got into that orientation, um, but I think I kind of like fell in such a way that like I was kind of twisting, and so. I, my hands hit first, but my body like twisted over and then I like smacked my shin on the rail. So I have this like a gnarly scar on my shin now from the rail. Um, and then luckily though, I was able to like swing my legs around pretty quickly because the first thing I thought when I hit the ground, cause I know that's what everybody wants to know. Everybody always asks me like, Oh, what was going through your mind when, when that happened? And like, to be honest, like not a lot, like I was, I didn't really know what was happening, but I knew that I was pretty far ahead somehow. And I knew that like, I got up in time, like I still might be able to win. Like that kind of came into my mind right away. But honestly, when I first tried to get up, I was super dizzy. Um, and I was just very lucky that when I put myself to my boot, that I was pointed straight towards the finish because otherwise I, I probably would not have uh, been able to win. Um, I, I, I'm sure I probably would have gotten oriented eventually, but I was definitely pretty blurry the first couple of moments when I first got up. So. Um, it's all that thinking about uh, whether Joe Flacco is the lead or not. It's what happened. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Any anything that I could get in my head to keep the pressure off me in that moment, whether it's contemplating the uh, elite status of Joe Flacco or whether it's you know noting you know the uh, the blood that was running down my shin. <laughs> um, any, anything that I could do to uh, to get myself to just uh, stay focused in that moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I mean, I. I also felt like it all happened very quickly. Like I, in the moment, felt like I had shot right back up to my feet. And when I was running again, I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, this is fine. Um, and then when I watched the video later, I was horrified because it actually looks like I was on the ground for an eternity. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the moment, it happened so quickly that I was back up and running. And by the time I got going again, I knew like, okay, I, I'm going to be fine. I got this because I, I felt like I was able to get back up to speed like relatively quickly. And I think that, you know, thankfully that was just because the race was tactical and I wasn't too gassed when I was coming into the last lap, but, um, I ended up only holding off the guy by about a half second. So I, <laughs> I had just enough real estate. Thankfully my mind didn't wander into the ball too much. But <laughs> I needed just about all the brain power I could get. Had, had you ever clipped the steeple before that, or had you ever fallen before that? Because I know like, so Chris and myself have both run steeple and I know I've clipped, I've, I've clipped two in my life. And I know like the thought process going through my head is just the most horrifying thing that I've ever lived through in running. 
like catching my knee on a steeple that I didn't just didn't get my knee up high enough and it was like I'm gonna die <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna land here and lay here forever <laughs> so I had only fallen one time before in a steeple it was in my sophomore year so my first year running the steeple in the uniform um at regionals I think but it was like pretty inconsequential it was like the last barrier after I was already like going to get like six in the heat and like yeah. not qualify and so I think I I hit the barrier with my knee then and like rolled and then got back up and I didn't even get past anybody it was just like one of those things where it's like end of the race like pretty tired um other than that though no I, I never really fallen in a steeple I, I grazed you know a few barriers here and there with a knee or a foot but most of the time I feel like I I was kind of able to like get away with that um so I, I don't think it ever was really like in my head that falling was going to be an issue. Um, but uh, yeah, it was definitely not a very opportune time to, uh, to have that kind of <laughs> come about. So. <laughs> I will say this, that like, no matter how far you get out of it, it's like your feeling of your foot grazing the top of the barrier will always make and an, uh, uh, don't, don't mind the vulgarity, make your butthole pucker going like that that little i just i just remember every time just like sliding and it's like whoo especially especially if you have more barriers to still go you make sure you get over that next one like okay i don't care that this one is gonna suck i'm not i'm gonna donk a brawl the next one i'm gonna look real good looking over it (laughs) yeah well i i feel like for me my form was always better the faster I was going usually. And so like normally if I was going to like at the end of the race, like I could actually get away with grazing a little bit because, you know, if I was going fast because I would come into it with some speed and normally like my toe would stay up and my leg was pretty lined up. So like if I grazed it, it wasn't really going to like kill my momentum that much. Um, but still, you know, whether it's the first lap or the last lap, you know, that's that kind of thing will always bring close. I mean, yeah, I can still think about it. Plus, you know, even if you get out of it clean, you know, you still leave with some bruises on your knees from that. Those, those barriers are painful. Yeah. <laughs> so. They're designed not to go anywhere. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, no, apparently. You've heard Larry Rollins say that once or twice. My goodness. Heard it a couple times. <laughs> yeah. um, so, following college um, and moving, too. Like, what's the process of going pro? I don't think. In the running, in the running scene, I don't think we ever hear too much about that. So, talk a little bit about your process of like, did you think you were going to go pro right after winning the national championship? I mean, you did do cross country right after, but like, how was the process for you? Yeah, I mean, um, it's different for a lot of people depending on you know kind of what they prioritize and a little bit of who they know and a little bit of just you know what they're trying to do. Um, for me, I would say like by midway through college, I knew that I wanted to try to run pro and I made that pretty clear to my coach right away. And so I think by the time I was in my like fifth year, I was at least having some conversations with some potential coaches and, um, you know, just talking to some agents just to get advice and, you know, talking about, you know, not any kind of like negotiations, but just like, you know, seeing, you know, what kind of things I should know, what I should look out for, you know what the best way to get in contact with some of these coaches was and kind of what things I should look out for. And it was helpful that one of my teammates, uh, dad was an agent, uh, Thomas Ratcliffe. Oh, cool. Was, was at Stanford. 
Yeah, so my college teammate, Thomas Ratcliffe's dad, Tom Ratcliffe, was just a really helpful sounding board for me, like, early on during, like, late 2018, early 2019, about, like, what kind of stuff to look for. Um, and so I felt like coming into, like, 2019 and after the NCAA championships, like, I had a couple of different options, but I knew that I wanted to come back and run cross-country regardless. And, um, you know, the, the whole goal was basically to, get some base from that, uh, and then make a decision after that, uh, leading up to the 2020 trials and, you know, maybe stay with my coach until the trials and then join a group after that, or maybe try to join a group in, you know, December, January and train with them for six months leading up to the trials. I didn't really mind either way. Cause either way, my priority was trying to race to the trials and, you know, make sure that I could be in the best position I could be to compete well there. But um, obviously, I knew in the long term, like I wanted to, you know, be able to train professionally and um, join a group somewhere. And I think like the structure and being able to have an actual group around me with uh, teammates and with some kind of you know funding for you know medical care and uh, uh, or at least you know some PT and massage budget and stuff like that was like really important to me as opposed to trying to do it all solo. Um, and also just, you know, because I think that that environment would be most similar to what I had in college. Um, so I looked at a couple of different groups and talked to some coaches and stuff. Um, and then after my fifth year ended, or my sixth year of cross country ended, I, um, was home for Christmas and I was kind of on the phone with coach Miltenberg, who at the time had moved to UNC. Um, so he was already in Chapel Hill and I was basically just like, Hey coach, like, I have a couple options right now, but like, I'm still not really sure exactly like what I want to go with. Like, um, can I like come train with you for a little bit while I kind of figure this stuff out? Cause it would just be better than just like being at home. And he was like, Oh yeah, like definitely dude. like come out here. Like you can train with me. Like I, you know, plenty of guys on the UNC team to run with in the meantime and Chapel Hill is an awesome place to run. And, um, you know, you can, you know, come stay with anybody here for like a month and then, you know, we'll get, you know, figure out kind of where you want to go. Um, and so that was what I did. I, I basically just like packed up a suitcase and flew out to Chapel Hill and uh, stayed with my old assistant coach, uh, Dylan Sorensen, who's now like a good friend of mine and still a mentor of mine. Um, and he's also the women head women's coach at UNC. Um, but he had been my assistant coach at Stanford, so I knew him well. And uh, yeah, so I, I was living with him and doing a little bit of training and uh, was hoping to race that indoor season, but had an Achilles injury that kind of kept me out of going um, to do much there. But then right when I was kind of getting back in form and, you know, getting ready to, I guess, light up an outdoor season was when kind of everything with COVID went down. And so as soon as we realized you know, there was going to be no 2020 Olympic trials, um, all of these groups that, you know, had been looking to try to add new members and, you know, companies, that were looking to try to sign contracts were all of a sudden, you know, kind of on a freeze, understandably, because yeah. they had to get their finances in order. And, um, you know, nobody was, was getting contracts during that time. So um, I I really wasn't panicked, though. Like, I, I knew at that time I had already agreed to kind of go in with uh, Tom Ratcliffe and Kimbia as my representation. I trusted him that he not only was going to be able to find me something as a professional runner, but also that he had my best interest in mind and, not just getting me a contract so I could be a pro, but putting me in like a situation that he thought was actually going to be something that I could grow in and that I would have the right resources to actually be good and be supported and improve as much as I thought I needed to to start making some teams. Um, so 
basically like around that time when everything happened, like I told Tom, like, Hey, like I'm, I'm comfortable out here for now. Like I'm training with coach Bill. Like I, I got an apartment out here with uh, another track guy, Dave, uh, Dave Kinzera, who just so happened to make the Olympics in 2021 in Florida. So found him <laughs> and, him. Um, and so basically I felt like I had a good like training environment in the meantime. Yeah. And uh, Tom told me like, he that uh they were pretty much looking to start a group out here anyways he was like there are a couple companies potentially puma um that are interested in starting like a pro group in chapel hill because it's just such a desirable place to train and it's very affordable for you know a young professional athlete and um puma was really looking to get into U.S. distance running and there were a couple of other companies that were also looking to start groups and so um i knew that probably you know by mid 2020 or maybe even you know the spring of 2020 and it, it was kind of more just a waiting game at that point where you know we knew that it wasn't going to happen during covid but we knew as soon as things got cleared up and the budget got in order that it was going to come through so in the meantime i just trained with coach mel the whole spring out in chapel hill and I actually had like a great training cycle and felt like i i got some great workouts with some unc guys and stuff on my own and i got a super good day and and more than anything, I was just really having fun and enjoying living out here. It made me realize, like, this is exactly what I want to be. Like, Buffalo is an awful place to live, and I think that I could do really well here. And I could do even better if I had some people around me to actually train with full-time. Um, and then so then this November, it kind of became official. And so Alistair Craig moved out here as the official coach for the Puma Group, and his wife, Amy, also helps coach us. And they're both awesome. They're both professional runners in their day, and they both have a lot of experience with um, different professional training settings throughout their careers, and they both have, have spent a lot of time around Bowerman Track Club, which is kind of the gold standard, I feel like, right now for U.S. distance groups. And so they kind of are taking all the experience from their professional experience, like, you know, their professional groups that they had in the past to try to build what they think is, like, the right model to get people coming out of college to succeed. And so... Um, yeah, they, they've done an awesome job so far in getting that set up. And I think now just getting some more people to join the group this coming year and trying to grow things out here. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it ended up being the perfect setup. Because, like I said, I mean, I, I love training out here already. And I love being able to have, uh, you know, Coach Mill and Coach Lawrence close by. But, um, yeah, I mean, I I think, like, what we have here is pretty awesome. And it was really cool with Puma to, um, you know, kind of invest in some people out here and, uh you know, really jump into things. And um, that's kind of what my journey with all that looks like. I think it's a lot different depending on who you ask. And I think yeah. mine is pretty unique given the time, <laughs> time of year that it happened. But yeah, yeah. that's what that's what it was like for me. It, it's funny because like, well, I went in the, I went into my closet, like, uh, I guess inside baseball, I'm actually in my room. I, I put a desk up here and then it's pretty nice to be able to do podcasting for her. But I went into my closet because I have like still about like 40 pairs of spikes from like, last two decades of like track spikes but i ran uh club cross in 2018 in a pair of puma harambees from 2002 which i think is the the goat spike of all time it is the jasari upper with a with an elderette plate and uh it's like for for anybody that doesn't know like puma was pretty well involved in running and like late in the nineties and the early two thousands, Daniel Komen ran in Puma. Like these are like to see Puma back in the game is actually really exciting to see like in the distance running game is really exciting to see. I mean, you saw Puma with, with Bolt 
and like and things like that. But seeing them back in the uh, distance running game is really exciting. Also, you guys have some flashy, uh, some flashy kits. Pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, you know Puma is uh, they're definitely jumping into the shoe game as best they can and, and trying to uh, get you know on a little playing field with Nike with all that stuff. And their R and D people are working super hard for that. But as far as the apparel and the gear, I mean, come on, man. Like Puma is as good as it gets. I mean, but you you got all these different sports. Uh, you know, between you know the, the soccer players and basketball players and and you know and then they've got every Walter you know yeah you want to talk about like Neymar Dua Lipa we got her like in terms of like style and everything like come on like Puma Puma is is the best that is the best that you can get you guys got Formula One you guys got Formula One I gotta add that in I gotta add that into the podcast I'm sorry yeah it's a common thing (laughs) yeah oh yeah so so when those when those boxes of gear come like you know you're gonna get some pretty awesome stuff you know the i would say that their performance gear is is great and it's honestly like i've been so impressed with the shoes and and the spikes and stuff and i know that they're uh working on actually making a new spike that should be ready for 2022 that um you know is hopefully going to be on par with what we saw this year on the track uh with some other brands so i'm excited about that but yeah when that box comes with all that casual wear too it's like oh man like i i could imagine being with another company Cool. Well, uh, Nicole has some, uh, has a surprise. I know that you normally in this part of the podcast, we do like kind of a rapid fire question, um, to whoever the guest is. It's just a bunch of random questions that like people ask from the internet or that I come up with out of the top of my crazy warped up head. Um, but one of the highlights of our 2020, one of the things that Chris would like send in the group chat was your brackets. Um, you had done a series of brackets that, you know, just comparing things like dinosaurs and there's, I think there was something about football mascots and cereals. And then there was a champions bracket. It was really cool. I kept us entertained when we had no March Madness in 2020. Um, and so, you know. Puma's great. We're not going to try to get you another shoe sponsor because, like, Puma's pretty much it. They're awesome. Uh, But we think we need another sponsor because of these brackets. So I've created a bracket of just kind of, like, in place of the rapid-fire questions. Um, So we're going to find you a new sponsor unofficially. (laughs) Unofficially official. I'm ready. Um, I love it. you got to answer these questions, okay? Okay. So uh, first up. Would you rather land in the water pit of Fiji water or smart water? Fiji water, 100%. Okay. Fiji moves on. Fiji moves on. Fiji moves on. All right. Next, would you rather have the mascot of um, the cereal runner-ups, trusty mascot, Fruit Loop Toucan, or one single dinosaur nugget, Tyson Brand, of course? I hate to disrespect Toucan Sam like this, but I'm going with Dino Nug on this one. The single nugget. That feels really like a respect. That is, that is the, yeah. uh, maybe upset egg. That's the upset of the night. I gotta at least send Dino Note through the first round. Let's see where this goes. Cinderella story. All right. Uh, if you had to have a dog, would you rather have a golden retriever or a whole room full of Monopoly dogs? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I think I'm super allergic to golden retrievers, so I'm gonna go with the Monopoly dogs. Uh, yeah, I, I would need a hypoallergenic for sure. Um, so yeah, I think that those hot, those Monopoly dogs will do the trick. Monopoly moves on. All right. So I'll Chris, get that. 
Joe Flacco or a Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor based off of your Olivia Rodrigo music face? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what would, what would that, that, that flavor would probably have to be called? Like what, like sweet sour or something? No, it would be called good for you and it would be whatever you want it to be. The oh, that's not so Because now you got to get away from it. have like cookie dough and like brownies. It's going to taste a lot like half-baked. Um, but it'll probably have cereal in it too. Um, be like full baked. Yeah, let's yeah let's do that then. I yeah I mean Joe Flacco, you know, <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to bring him into this right now. But the debate it, the debate is still ongoing. The athleticism. Yeah, so right. okay, we'll go with good for you ice cream. Yeah. So you have to pick a planetary situation, right? Um, and this planet will be your sponsor. So we either bring back Pluto's bracket eligibility and planet ship, okay. or we destroy Earth using only a mob of Stanford trees. Oh my goodness, are you kidding? Let's bring back Pluto. Get, him, get it back in there. Pluto's sweet. I really don't think that it should have been like deactivated. I'm honestly still offended by this. Yeah, um, no, they must have. I don't know if it was if it was some kind of like scandal or something, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think there was some definitely some shady business there. Somebody had a vendetta against Pluto. Yeah, yeah. They, just, they just caught it. It was like... It was framed, yeah. Yeah, for real. Okay, um, another pet. One actual real-life Puma, the animal. Or one actual real-life dinosaur. I'm going to take the dinosaur. I, I think there's a lot of money that can be made if I can get one dinosaur. Do you have a specific dinosaur to pick? That's fair. I mean, I, I, I thought that the Puma would move on. I honestly... Yeah, I, I, did, I didn't think we'd get this far. Huh? I didn't think we'd get this far. Are we going, are we going, uh, we, what kind of dinosaur are we looking at? Brontosaurus, T-Rex, dude, Triceratops? Oh, I want, you know, I'm thinking, uh, you, you know, one of those water dinosaurs, what is it, a plesiosaurus? I like those guys. Probably either one of those or, like, a stegosaurus. I heard stegosaurus have, like, a very small brain, so, like, I think that, like, I would be pretty safe. I was pulling for the stegosaurus. Yeah. yeah. I was kind of too. The steg is a pretty classic pick. Let's go with that. I'll take the stegosaurus over the uh, over the, the live puma. All right. Well, you've got enough big cat energy in your life, I guess. Um, cool. Do you have to pick um, a mascot to get outkicked by in a race? Would you rather get outkicked by the Buckeye Knight, also known as Brutus, or would you rather get outkicked by one of those cinnamon toast crunchers with eyes? Oh man, there'd be nothing more devastating than getting out kicked by the Buckeye Nut, so let's send him through. <laughs> oh, kick it through the Buckeye Nut? Yeah, we'll you know, take one. I'm actually really excited to hear you say that. Um, and then, because I'm an idiot and forgot to math, I came up with this one while we were talking on the podcast. Um, would you rather own the Carlsbad Library and be able to revert back to those badass cards, or would you rather own Wikipedia and kind of be able to slide little Stephen Fahey Easter eggs in random Wikipedia pages. Oh man, I mean, well, Wikipedia is basically the library of the future. Um, I think most of what I learn these days comes from Wikipedia, and I, you know, while I of course proudly own my library cards, I probably use it less frequently than I should. So let's go with Wikipedia. All right. So we have an elite eight, you guys. Um, we're down to. Next round, uh, feed you water or the dinosaur chicken nugget? <laughs> oh man, this is like when like there's like an upset in the first round, like UMBC beats Virginia in the first round, and then like the eighth seed gets to play UMBC in the second round. 
Yeah, the Nug is gonna is gonna beat BG Water pretty easily there. Boom. That's fair. That's fair. Um, the the room full of Monopoly dogs or Joe and Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor. Yeah, the ice cream ice cream is definitely moving on in that one. I'll, I'll say at this point, I think Ben and Jerry's ice cream is gonna win. I'm just gonna call it now. I'm, I'm putting. We'll, I'm, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We're, you don't. You don't. 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 Uh, keep that poker face. Keep that poker face. It stays impartial. We can't just call it two, or it might just not even make the tournament next yeah. time. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> we got Pluto versus the Stegosaurus. Oh, Stegosaurus, yeah. I don't know, man. We're... I just like it. I just, I'm happy it got out of the first round. That's like, it, I'm just happy it got out of the first round. Yeah, well, I'm it's proud of it. It yeah. started as like just like a, a dinosaur, like a live dinosaur, which like I feel like was a tight matchup, but once we like identified it as a steg, like I feel like it's Happy we got a win. I know you, you uh, Ohioans are probably excited that Buckeye not even made an appearance in the second Listen, round. Listen, I am because I think it's a lot less embarrassing to lose to Wikipedia than it is to lose to this pool called Oral Roberts. Anyway, we're down to a final four. We're down to a final four. All right. Um, we got the Dino Nugget versus Ben and Jerry's. This is a tight matchup. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this one, I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of dipping sauces I have for this Dino Doug. If, if that were even allowed, I'm still going with the Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's, go to the next round. Ben, next round. I mean, it's, a, it's an ice cream where I get to put in whatever I want. Like, my mind is, this whole tournament, my mind has still actually just been running through all the things that I can throw in there. Um, yeah, yeah, ice cream, ice cream to the finals. Ice cream to the finals. And then we've got our Stegosaurus, our underdog, our underdino. Um, versus Wikipedia. All right, Stegosaurus gets a date with Did Ben and Jerry's that. in the final. Did not expect right, that one. Final two. This is going to be a really intense matchup. Our Stegosaurus versus the good for you, Olivia Rodrigo slash Stephen Fahey ice cream combination. Man, I mean, I, I'd like to say it would be close, but like, yeah, I think I think the Ben and Jerry's just ran through this tournament. So are you, are you are you telling are you telling me that uh, that Stegosaurus is Gonzaga this year? Yeah, pretty much. Like, I mean, I think that people were really rooting to see Dino Nug versus real Dino in the final. I think that that would have been fun for people, like maybe like a Duke UNC kind of thing. But like, yeah, I mean, I think that you know that while you know we had our Gonzaga and Stegosaurus, like that everybody was like, oh look, like they they like really found themselves, like they know who they are, like. You know, we can bet on them like they're a pretty sure team. Like, I mean, come on, man. I think there's, <laughs> there's too much to work with with the Olivia Rodrigo good for you, CFA, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Like, that is a lineup right there. Well, so now there's a really important question, right? The, the confetti has fallen. We got this trophy. We're, we're real pumped. All the teammates are lit and shit. Um, what is the good for you ice cream? What is everything that's in it? Okay, so I've been thinking about it. So there's there's definitely there's cookie dough, um, there's gonna be pieces of real brownie, um, and then there's 
going to be cereal, but uh, the cereal that I decided that's going to be in there is um, tricks. The kind of tricks where it's still shaped like the actual fruits. Um, I was just, Chris told me to bring cereal takes, and I was I was talking with uh, some of my roommates just yesterday about how we're pissed that tricks now just like gives kids like these little colorful balls of cereal. But I'm old enough to remember when tricks was like, no, you can actually get like a little cereal that's like shaped like a banana and like like a grape, like it's like art. Like, it, the intricacy of it was unbelievable. Or do we only see it that way? Because we're not kids anymore, and tricks are for kids. Shoot. Oh, All right. oh no. Uh, oh, no. It's like not being able to see the Polar Express. I'm so upset right now. Why would you do this stuff? <laughs> I'm you... so sad. I'm honestly so sad. It's pro- It's definitely true. That's definitely what happened. I miss it. I miss when those little... Like cereals were shaped like little fruits. It was wonderful. What you don't know is like that every time at at at, at uh, breakfast, uh, the best the best time was like Stephen's cereal takes were top notch. He's a he's a Honey Nut Cheerios guy, if I remember correctly. I, I am Honey Nut Cheerios is at the uh, top of my pyramid, but I I spent way just entirely too much time thinking about cereal in my life, uh, and so it's it's led to some good takes and bad takes, but. Mm. Yeah, I think I think we'll have we'll definitely have some cereal and the ice cream. I think it'll be a cake batter base, and uh, I mean, I think that I think that that's starting off pretty good. Um, gosh, I don't know if there's anything else in there that I can do as like a tribute to Olivia Rodrigo. Like, I feel like she kind of deserves like maybe like a little like nod. But as, as, as long as it makes and healthy, and too. also she can be happy and healthy too because the next line is not me, and I just think that's sad. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, she does say, like, good for you, you're getting everything you want. And, like, that's exactly what I'm getting. Like, yeah. So, the, yeah, the, yeah. the winner of this tournament, they have two choices. They're not going to go to Disneyland. We're not going to give them that. We're not giving them that. Two no. choices. They have two choices. Okay. Are they going to go to a Padres game or a Trader Joe's? Okay, so the Pods are good this year. We got. We got like a six hundred million dollar side of the uh, infield in Machado and Tatis. Um, I went to go see them, and it was sweet. That being said, it doesn't even come close to a visit to Trader Joe's. It's it's like therapy, except it's just like way easier and cheaper. And uh, <laughs> you also get, you also get some wonderful groceries. Um, yeah, we're going to Trader Joe's. We're going to celebrate. Uh, Trader Joe's is going to have samples again. That's part of the celebration. Because you know we're all waiting for those to come back. We're going to get our little coffees in those little mini cups, and we're going to sip them while we look and peruse, and we're not going to make a list when we go in. We're just picking whatever we want. Can we confirm that they, your neighbor is a Trader Joe's guy? 100%. I actually, yeah, this is important that people know this, because if you've been following my Twitter, at first I was I was actually 76% sure, like I said, and then like later on I became more sure. And now, like, I'm 100% sure. But unfortunately, like, he's the neighbor who got off, like, on really the wrong foot with us because every time our car was parked, even, like, slightly toward his driveway, like, he would get all pissed about it. And, like, it was the kind of thing where, like, our house is, like, very close to his, but there's, like, a curve in between where, like, you can park. And it's about one car's length. So if you park your car perfectly along there, it fits and you're not blocking anybody's driveway. If you're... The front of your bumper is even an inch towards this dude's driveway, meaning he can totally still back out, but he just sees that you're inching over. 
he comes over to your house and knocks on your door and is like, hey, you gotta move your car. Literally first day we move in, this is what this guy's doing. So definitely didn't get onto like the best foot as like in terms of like, you know, a neighbor. Um, but yeah, we uh, we always just knew him as like the mean guy that lived next to us. It wasn't until much later that I realized he worked at Trader Joe's. And his Trader Joe's personality is like amazing. Oh, he's, like, the, the Trader Joe's people guy. are like the nicest people. Exactly. That's the thing. So he's, he lives a double life. And uh, I choose to enjoy the Trader Joe's version and choose to ignore the one that's my next door neighbor. But yeah. He, put I, on, he puts on customer service face. That's what right. it is. Here we go. Yeah. No, that is. I mean, he can turn it on and turn it off, and I respect him for that. Um, and I'll always respect, you know, my, my Trader Joe's heroes, obviously. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, I can confirm 100% my neighbor works at Trader Joe's. Quick, quick, uh, quick questions on you. Uh, to finish this off, uh, or quick questions for you to finish this off. Uh, you did make a mention that uh, more track athletes nowadays do not have great nicknames. If you had some nicknames to give for some of our uh, current track superstars, what do you give them? Yeah, would you, uh, which ones do you like the best? Did you do some research on some of them? I looked at some of them. I I, I looked at some of them, but, but I, I kind of need... I, and, and also, also Stephen did a really great job ahead of the Olympic trials by telling us how to pronounce people's names. Like I, I kind of oh, yes, that, that is true. I actually, it's funny. I learned how to pronounce Daniel Mahalski's name like on the starting line. Um, Mihalski, he introduced himself like that. Yeah, you got Shakari Richardson. Everybody was saying Shakari. You got L Perrier. People were saying Ellie Perrier. But yeah, no, you're right. Let me see if I can think of some of these nicknames. So I got, I got some of that you named, but is there any ones that weren't named out here? And uh, Nick Cole, if you have to drop off, totally cool. I'll cut that off real quick. But uh, if you need to drop off, that's totally fine. Uh, yeah, let's see. Okay, so some of the ones that I think I came up with. Oh, so Kenny Kenny Selman, former UNC athlete, he's sponsored by Spider. So I feel like we need a Spider-Man in track and field. Yeah. And they're S-E-Y-D-E-R, Spider. So I feel like Spider-Man was would be a pretty like with the Y would be a pretty awesome nickname for him. He's like a farmer hurdler, so I feel like yeah. you know you get the whole like extended limbs and everything. Like I, feel like, I don't know that kind of acrobatic uh, sport. How 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 cold the hawk hawker or big hawk didn't become a thing? Shocked. I don't know, man. I mean, yeah, I, and that was before he made the Olympics too. I mean, like I I don't know, maybe he got too big for those nicknames, but I feel like yeah, big hawk. I mean, I like I like I like Luigi. Yeah, Luigi's good. Yeah, come on, Luigi. I mean, that's yeah. too easy. Yeah. Louis Gropa, Louis Gropa, that's great. Jerry the Professor War. Because like, if people want to call him Luis, yeah, um, like that's fine. Like I get that, but like I heard somebody call him like Louis one time, and I was like, oh no no no. no. But then I was like, all right, Lu like I heard someone say Luis G, and I was like, oh Luis G, that kind of sounds cool. And then I was like, wait a minute. Luigi. Yeah, yeah. No, that's too easy. Yeah. Um, Monsoon Monson. Very good. Alicia yeah. Monsoon Monson. Very good. Uh, a little bit more for that one, but still, yeah, I mean, come on. That's, uh, at least it's kind of cool. Um, lieutenant I mean, Sam Kendricks is pretty good. I mean, come on. You know, he's, I think he is a lieutenant, so it's like, it works. Yeah. Um, he's in the military. Like, and, I, uh, the name that I hate right now to use. And Flow Track uses it a lot. Uh, it's one of the guys from the Bowerman Track Club, uh, the 10K guy. I forget what his name is. 
I'm blanking out on his name. Um, is he the uh, British guy? Uh, no, British oh, guy. No, British guy. British guy, Mark Scott. Yeah, me and Mark Scott. Hate it. Hate it. I hate me and Mark Scott. It's not good. It's not a good nickname. Yeah, that's a bad one. It's a bad nickname. They keep making it. They keep making it a thing. Not a good name. That sounds like a UFC fighter's name. <sighs> me and Mark Scott? Come on, man. Hate it. Hate yeah, it. Yeah, like Grant has kind of been rolling with like Fresh Fish for a while. I like Fresh Fresh. Um, like that was, I think that was his Twitter name in like high school. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like other Bowerman nicknames. Yeah, they don't really have too many. I don't know if it was just their social media guy that came up with Mean Mark Scott or if that's something that is like a joke within getting, the team. But it's getting too dumb sound. Yeah, I don't know. I think they could do better. I mean, I'm sure he gets tired of all the like great Scott, um, like. Uh, Stuff to, or I guess like uh, newspaper headlines or whatever, but yeah, me and Mark Scott was even worse than that. My next thing is for you, what is, uh, what's your hottest take coming into football season? Man, all right. Hottest take coming into football season. Um, that's tough. I, so I used to always be good for like a you know a Philip Rivers take about how many yards he was going to throw or something like that. And sadly, this is the first year in in many that uh, our our man Phil is not around. I can't even make a guess that he's going to like have another kid or something. It's, I don't even think that's a hot take. It's probably going to happen. Um, I and you know Flacco is kind of just like out of it a little bit right now. So like him becoming the starter is like not a big thing. I guess my biggest hot take this year is uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick goes and. Uh, just like goes on a run in Washington. I actually think their team is pretty good. Um, like they have a nice defense, like Chase Young and stuff. And I think we, I think we get one last dose of Fitzmagic this year when people least expect it. I think he goes and just like wins like five or six games in the early part of the season. And then I think with this uh, seventeen game season this year, um, you can make the playoffs at I don't know what, like nine and eight. Who's your top rookie um, QB this year? Top rookie QB is Justin Fields. I think he does. Uh, yeah, I think he does even better than uh, Lawrence. I mean, I, like I think Lawrence is great, but uh, listen, can I just interject here? I know that the preseason doesn't matter, and I know that you know the first NFL game is really going to be week one. But we played. I'm a huge Cleveland fan. We played Jacksonville, and Trevor Lawrence stepped out onto the field, and his first NFL play was a sack. Strip sack. He got the ball back, unfortunately, but he was sacked. Yeah. I'm so happy. I know. I think he's just one of those guys that's had so much pressure on him. I I think that everybody else has just been given an amazing opportunity to go show him up. One, uh, I'm, I'm saying Trey Lance, by the way. If he starts in San Francisco, I'm going to say Trey Lance. That's my hot take. Uh, can, can I get a hot hot take Browns take from you just for yeah. the fans. Um, okay. I actually, I actually love the Browns this year. Um, man. Um, I would say my, my hottest Browns take would probably be like, I don't know, maybe like a little resurgence of juice Landry. I like, I really like juice, but like I really, he, he wasn't amazing last year. I, I'm, I'm worried about Odell. I, I have a ball on my fantasy team, he gets hurt. Um, yeah, I think Juice Landry has a big year. I don't know that that's a hot take, but 
I don't, I don't even think it's hot to say that they're going to, like, make the playoffs. Like, they're probably going to be, like, I don't know, 12-5 and five this year. It's, it's so weird doing the new schedule thing. The numbers don't make any sense. It's like, I'm so used to seeing 10-6, and 12-4, but yeah. I think, I think the Browns are good for 12 and five. I think, I think juice has a good year. And I think that the defense is good. And I think Baker does enough. Can we do a wolf check? Wolf, wolf. Wolf, wolf. <laughs> You're on Twitter. So if you, if you like the Browns, you need to follow the Browns Beckers North Korea. I have no oh, idea. I will yeah. right now. It's very good. I have no idea if it's actually run by somebody in North Korea. My guess is no, but the Korean, from what I understand, is almost perfect. So it's definitely somebody with ties to probably South Korea. But I love they, those kind of accounts. They post <laughs> the most amazing stuff. This wolf check is from them, and they they have nicknames for all the people on the team. It's amazing. You need to follow it. Uh, it's That's very good. good. Do you guys remember the um, like Captain Andrew Luck account? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. That's like a great follow. I miss Andrew Luck so much every day. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the, yeah, that's great. I'm I'm totally into like the uh, like NFL parody accounts and joke accounts. Uh, so I'll go right on that. Sm- smoking Jay Cutler. Smoking Jay Cutler, exactly. Yeah. Apparently, like he like there's a story, and I'm, I can't confirm if it's actually true. Where like this guy went to uh, the bathroom and he's pissing in the urinal, and uh, the guy next to him is a. Uh, it's Jay Cutler, and he's like, "Oh my God, you're Jay Cutler!" And he's pissed drunk and don't care, just like yells out, "Don't care," <laughs> kind of guy. That must have really cut. <sighs> but, dude, thank you so much for being on the pod. We, I, dude, I just miss talking to you. I, 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 I oh, miss the wit. <laughs> I know, dude. I'm, I'm sorry that I. Uh so long about some of that stuff i know this was a long pod but yeah no i was having so much fun too you guys are cool yo i yeah i we'd uh we'd love to have you in the future of just like a just like a shoot the shit one where we just like come up with the most random topics and just like even go from there oh yeah no no dude bring me in yeah a shit show bracket oh yeah yeah like that's that's the thing i would love to have just so you to like because I think for me, just introduce introduce Stephen. Because like, like it's it, your story is fantastic, and I think that one of the common things, just kind of like wrapping everything up together, is like, is, and, and I would I would really for people that really enjoy running and enjoy like the process of like being a team player, I would really encourage you to listen to Stephen's like interview post the um, post him winning the national title. Like the first thing is like. I want to give inspiration to the guys after me. And it's it says a lot about your character. And you've always been like that. Even when you were a freshman, strangely enough, like even as a freshman, you still had a very much like you, you compose yourself very well. And and to see you grow into the man you are, it's been very cool to see over the last like 10 years. And um, and, and honestly, it's just been if people don't people that don't follow you, follow him on 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 Twitter and follow him on on Instagram. Both like the, the takes are hilarious. The co- the the captions are like a one captions, but like it just generally just one of the the best people in the sport today. One of the best just general people that I love to cheer about cheer cheer for and tell my friends like I I I, I know this guy's a fantastic runner, but just a fantastic human being. And it's been it's been a pleasure to have you back. I haven't seen you in probably like six years at this point. <laughs> 
So it, it's been it's been fun. It's been fun catching up, and uh, would love to have you on. It's like just a shoot the shit and uh, a, a fun pod going in the future. Man, well, there's not much I can say to uh, <laughs> to follow up that, but I'm I'm always here for the brackets. Uh, I'm always here to shoot the shit, and uh, I mean it's been awesome having you in my corner through this whole thing, Chris. So thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Uh, if you guys want to follow me, follow me at Beers and Miles at beersandmiles.com. I'm going to get an article up for the uh, the AK that I just ran. Um, and I, 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 I think uh, I shook off the, the little injury bug that I had last week. So we're back at it going into Boston. We've already started the uh, the whole process of the uh, – we have a we have a doc coming forward, coming into Boston. So I'm excited to get that all going. Uh, Brent, what can they follow you? Um, Instagram and Twitter at Hunter Runner. Uh, if you want to play video games with me on Xbox, Little Hunter Five. If you want to watch me play video games, uh, The Runner Five Point Five on Twitch. Cool, Nicole. We're gonna follow you. Um, I'm still on a little bit of a super public social media hiatus. Um, but you know, if you follow me on my private account, I post a lot of really stupid stuff. Um, you can also follow my dog. Uh, at Ray the Doggo um, on Instagram. She has really been trying to up her following and up her posting. Um, she's gotten some some really cute photos in the past few days, so you would uh, you will not and not going to want to miss it. <laughs> also, you can add me on Pokemon Go. Um, I send gifts kind of often. Sorry for not sending gifts. <laughs> and yeah. Stephen, where can they follow you? Um, you guys can follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Stephen C. Fahey with a V. Um, you can also follow my foodie account on Instagram, uh, Trader Joe's Track Club. And uh, you can follow me on Strava. Um, my name is Stephen Fahey. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. See ya.